Welcome to EV Chat Season 3. I'm your host, Rue Phillips. This show is an electric vehicle podcast with a difference. We're going to be interviewing some key players from the electric vehicle industry, legislators, manufacturers, drivers from the street. Stick around. This is a fun kind of podcast. Yes, welcome back to EV Chat Season 3. Can you believe that? I'm your host, Rue Phillips, and we're going to kick off the season with Brendan Keegan, CEO of Merchants Fleet, the fastest growing fleet technology company in North America. In 2022, Merchants Fleet announced a significant fleet electrification initiative, featuring partnerships with major car and EVSE companies all with the goal of helping clients transition to EV fleets. Additionally, last year, Merchants Fleet announced sponsorship of McLaren's Extreme E all-electric racing team. Yes, you heard right, McLaren, which you know we're all going to ask questions about. Keegan is an award-winning leader who has experience in business strategy, raising capital, and technology enablement. Brendan serves as a member of the board for Revolution Armor and Express, IT Logistics, and serves as a chair of the Compensation Committee for both companies. He received his bachelor's degree from RPI, MBA from George Washington University, and executive certificate from Harvard, Columbia, UPenn, MIT, and U Chicago. That's some pedigree right there. We want to welcome aboard today's episode, Brendan Keegan. Welcome aboard, Brendan. So, Brendan, welcome to EV Chat today. I'm excited about what you're doing. You've got a different kind of business model that may not be familiar with our listeners. Tell us a little bit more. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on today. So, about our business model. So, we're Merchant Fleet, we're a commercial fleet company. So, if you think of fleets, you might not naturally think of anything in particular. But if you look down the highway, the next time you're driving, one out of five vehicles you pass is a fleet vehicle. Now, you'll say, oh, UPS and FedEx and Amazon. Those are the ones you see. But then you'll see, you know, Joe's Plumbing, and then you'll see Edible Arrangements, and then you'll see Primoris, and then you'll see Terminex, and you'll see all these. So one out of five vehicles on the road is a fleet vehicle. And what we do is we manage those vehicles for some of the world's largest brands. So everything from selecting what vehicle they should be driving and helping them get the best total cost of ownership, helping them fuel and maintain the vehicles, register them, making sure the drivers are driving safely by putting telematics technology in those, keeping our roads safe for 20% of our drivers. So that's what we do. You know, we keep 20% of those vehicles on the road safe and running at a good cost for our clients. That's exciting. It really is. You mentioned Joe's Plumbing. I call it Chuck and his truck. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, to to see a local fleet is going to be really, really exciting. That's fantastic. So what are some of the barriers that you're finding in expanding electrified fleets? So one thing we have done 
here is we really believe in electrification across North America, probably more so than, you know, almost any other company. And we have actually gone out and already reserved and ordered over 40,000 electric vehicles for our clients coming in the next couple of years. And again, we're not talking, don't think of the consumer type vehicles. Think of cargo vans and pickups, the, the 40 Transit, the Bright Drop EV600. So one of the biggest barriers right now is as you know, us here in the United States and in North America are going down this path, it's having the right vehicles for the application being needed. And then secondly, it's the infrastructure. You know, if you're in major metro areas, there's infrastructure, but as you get out to more rural areas, there's not as much infrastructure. And, you know, if you look at the U.S. and our geography, we're a very big country. We're very spread out. So it's having the right vehicles and the supply chain going on right now isn't helping us at all. And then having the infrastructure and, you know, there's always a debate which comes first. And my answer to the debate is they both come together because you can't have one without the other. If you don't have the vehicles, then, you know, someone's losing money on the infrastructure. And if you have the vehicles, but not the infrastructure, then you can't be charging them. So, you know, the barriers right now are getting vehicle availability. Oftentimes up front, the vehicle costs a little bit more to acquire the initial vehicle. It then costs less to drive the vehicle on an ongoing basis. And then having the infrastructure in place for all the applications, if you're a last mile delivery company or you're that plumbing company that's driving locally. Yeah, you mentioned availability. I'm in the market for an EV. I'll speak a little bit more about that later. But the additional cost, they wanted some $20,000 over sticker price for an EV that was on the lot. You're finding that? Yeah, so right now what we're really seeing, and it's the first time really in the in auto's history, we're seeing with the supply chain, almost all vehicles going for over sticker. You know, this past year, we saw record highs on used vehicles. You know, quite frankly, I had many of my friends, you know, call up and say, hey, Brennan, I can't believe how much I can get for my used vehicle. I said, well, before you sell it, make sure you know what you're gonna be getting because they're charging more for that vehicle. So the charging over MSRP right now is less about electric vehicles, more about all vehicles. But let's talk about just normalcy. When we're generally paying what we've paid over the last 50 years for vehicles, you'll pay a 10 to 15% premium up front. So if you're buying a $40,000 pickup truck, cargo van, some type of it, you're gonna pay you know about 50 if it's electric. Now you're gonna say, okay, so my monthly payment's gonna be more. However, you're gonna save six, seven, eight thousand dollars a year on maintenance, tires, brakes, and everything that it takes for that vehicle. So your payback period is typically a year and a half to two years. And then if you drive the vehicle over five years, you're gonna actually have, you know, made money, if you will, just taking a typical forty thousand dollar cargo van or pickup, you know, your payback period's a year and a half to two and over the life of it, say five to seven years, you'll actually be ahead twenty dollars to $25,000. So you just said one of the big barriers, therefore, would be educating the customer that the payback is so quick. So uh, is there a particular industry or sector that's more interested in electrification, a sector that's embracing it more than others? Yeah. When we look at industry fixedness and industry opportunity, Probably the one that's accepting it the most are, let's call them home delivery, transportation, logistics companies, last mile companies. So just recently, Walmart announced that they were buying 5,000 Bright Drop EV600s. 
Amazon announced, I think 18 months ago, two years ago, that they invested in actually an electric company called Rivian and were bringing 100,000 to market. FedEx has announced a partnership also with Brightdrop where they're bringing EVs, companies like Ikea. So companies that are in the home delivery, last mile logistics are kind of leading. Now, after that, it's less about what industry are you in and what is your company's ESG strategy. And ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And take a company like Patagonia, which has taken a very progressive stance on being an ESG company right down to who they do business with. And they feel that that's important for their consumer base, people that like wearing Patagonia. They would be a company that might not fit in an industry that you know you would think would be going electric, but because their company strategy, their philosophy, their board, their leadership team has made that a very important part of their future. So I think it's it's less about industries once you get out of the transportation and logistics. And by the way, you're gonna have some natural ones, companies that are in alternative fuels, solar and utilities because they wanna be trendsetters. But then when you go across the other 20, 30, 50 industries, it's really gonna come down to what is that company's policy? What is their strategy on environmental, social, and governance? So for our listeners, explain last mile. Okay, so last mile. Ruth, if you don't mind, I also want to tell you, you know, one thing about last mile. So we've all heard of COVID, right? We've all heard of COVID, this great yep. pandemic. I don't know if you know what the next pandemic, it's already been declared what the next pandemic is. The next pandemic is called Primnesia. Ruth, are you familiar with Primnesia? No, I'm not. No. Okay, so Primesia is I'm going to get home tonight and on my steps is going to be a box. It's going to be from Amazon and I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to go, I don't remember what I ordered. Primesia. Okay. So you like that? I love right. it. I love um, it. <laughs> so, and, and by the way, I bring the box in and my son and I play a game, I swear, every other night. Now, during the holidays, I think we were playing it too much. So last mile is all those packages that get delivered to your house. That's last mile, okay. you know, so Amazon, UPS, FedEx, if you've been one of those people that started working out on Peloton bikes and they deliver that bike to your house, that's last mile. You're seeing grocery stores enter last mile. You know, Amazon acquired Whole Foods and Whole Foods will deliver to your house now. You're seeing other chains like Kroger and, and others start to do that. DoorDash, these are last mile. Anybody that's delivering something to an end business or to an end consumer. That's last mile. You also hear it called transportation and logistics. And just remember, Rue, you don't have to give me credit if you want to use that Primesia joke with any of your <laughs> any of your friends. I love it. I absolutely love it, Brandon. So talk to us about opportunities like uh, integrating electrification into last mile delivery. Are there any special challenges for this type of transit? The only challenges are for these companies, they need very highly dense centralized charging infrastructure. If you have ever driven past a UPS depot where they might have 30 trucks or a FedEx or an Amazon, or for that matter, you see a group of, of any, you know, you've got consolidated infrastructure needed there. So, you know, you've got to do a pretty good build out of your infrastructure charging, you know, so that's one thing. Now, when you look at these vehicles, although they're driving all day, they actually don't drive as many miles as a lot of people think. Yep. You know, because if you think of it, if it's stopping at my house and then it's stopping at your house, Rue, and then it's stopping a couple houses down, you know, in the course of an hour, it may have only driven two, three, four, five miles. 
And because more and more people are buying goods online, matter of fact, last year we crested at 14% of all goods across the U.S. were bought online, up from 11% before COVID. So the vehicles drive less. So that is actually helpful for the charging infrastructure that generally speaking, they don't have to worry about charging in the middle of the day. Now, if you were doing long haul trucking or you were taking long trips, now you would have to charge during the day. So that's gonna be less of a challenge. The challenge right now for these companies, and, and we're facing it, is we have more demand, more companies that want these vehicles than we have supply. And I think just over the last year, we've heard people like Mary Barr, the CEO and great visionary at General Motors. We've seen Jim Farley, the great leader at Ford, talking about the billions and billions and billions of dollars being invested into their EV infrastructure plants, into their EV lines, and how by 2030, 2035, all their vehicles are gonna be coming on in EVs. However, that's great for the future, but if you're looking today, we're tracking those vehicles down, you know, one, two, 10, 30 at a time. There's not as much supply. So that's something we're seeing. And then secondly, when a company makes the decision to go electric, it's a really exciting time, but there's also anxiety. And the word for it is range anxiety. So you get a driver, he gets in it and he goes, oh, where do I fill up? I know all the gas stations along my route. Now I've got concerns. What's going to happen when it's cold out? I hear these EVs when it's cold, the range goes down. Or what happens if I'm fully loaded up, the range goes down. So now the range anxiety, like any type of anxiety, is more anxiety than reality oftentimes. But there's education that has to go into the drivers, the fleet managers, to make people feel comfortable that, you know, the day that you had yesterday is going to be very similar to the day today. But, you know, since we've all been 16 or 17, we've known how to fill up a car. It's pretty straightforward. Okay, well, going to a charging station is different. It's different than filling up a car. So it's just something new. And then when you're on the road right now, each charging station has a different application that you use. So, you know, there's just going to be some nuances. And by the way, some people are going to embrace it. And some people are going to say, ah, I want my old ICE vehicle back, internal combustion engine. And I just want to go to a regular gas station. Why do I have to search this out? So you got to get education. And quite frankly, we also have to be patient with people and help them understand the role that they play and kind of building a better planet for our kids and grandkids by bringing electrification to market so we can have a better ESG strategy as a world. That's interesting. I would have thought fleets had a finite distance and, you know, they wouldn't have been so worried about range anxiety. So you're still having to educate your customers on range anxiety? We do. So, you know, I happen to be uh, about 45 minutes north of Boston. So I'm in New Hampshire. And, you know, what's interesting, as soon as you say you're in New Hampshire, people think, oh, you're not in an urban area. Well, if I drive two hours north, I start to get into a rural area. If you go out to, say, Montana and North Dakota and South Dakota, you know, you start to get in more rural areas where your delivery or, you know, let's say you're Joe's painting, you might paint at one place in the morning and you might drive 50 miles to the next place. You know, I learned a little bit about Montana just watching that popular uh, show. What is it? Yellowstone out in Montana. And it seems like, you know, when they go house to house, they're driving 10 miles. So as you start to get into what I call some of the box states out in the northwest, you start to get in rural areas when people are driving more between appointments or they're driving more in the course of a day just to get to the next place. That's when you'll have some greater issues because the infrastructure isn't going to be as plentiful there. 
But I'll also say there's not as many gas stations in those locations. So if you have to drive an extra five miles to the gas station, you might have to drive an extra 10 miles, five miles to the charging station in the future. And now a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Fluke Corporation, the world leader and manufacturer of electrical test and measurement equipment. Fluke keeps your world up and running. You know, with so many diverse types of EV chargers out there and so much voltage behind them, it's more important than ever to have the right tool to safely diagnose, troubleshoot, and ensure your electric vehicle supply equipment is working properly after the repair or service. When it comes to safety and lives on the line, there's simply no room for error. Fluke's instruments are designed and tested to get the job done efficiently, with ease, and to get your workforce home to their families at the end of each workday. You can rely on Fluke to keep you and your workforce safe from harm. After all, you can't put a price on your safety. To learn more about Fluke's premium products and suite of EV tools, visit Fluke.com. That's F-L-U-K-E.com. Fluke.com. Now let's get back to rocking. So let's talk about legislation, state and fed incentives. Like here in California, the governor just announced $62 billion incentive just towards electrification and EVs. Where do you see the infrastructure bill aiding in an expanding merchant's fleet business model and electric vehicle arm? So there's two great components, and, and this is a really important point. If you look at countries in Europe that have been very successful, so I don't know if you watched last year's Super Bowl. Now, you know, I did, but not as closely. It was one of the first ones in the last 20 years that the Patriots haven't been in, huh? But that's another uh-huh. story. But when, when you watch the Super Bowl, you saw Will Ferrell with General Motors kind of making fun of, you know, how Norway was so far in front of the U.S., Well, what's interesting about that is Norway has done a great job, as many other European countries, at giving incentives to buy these vehicles, giving incentives, and the government has actually put in a lot of the infrastructure, given incentives to companies to put in the infrastructure. Now, I'll tell you, in Europe, they've gone as far as giving now disincentives for driving ICE vehicles. So this incentives is very, very important because you might have a business that says, absolutely, we want to go EV but we're gonna have to put 20 chargers in and we don't have all that capital. Well, by the way, our company can help you with that, with the funding, we'll put it in and make it easy for you. But importantly, if they can get incentives, so let's say the vehicle I talked about earlier, ICE vehicle was 40 and the electric vehicle was 50. Well, maybe someone that's going, I don't wanna spend 10 grand out of pocket up front. Well, as the government comes in and says, well, why don't we give you on commercial vehicles a tax credit? to help get you there? Or what if we give you infrastructure credit if you put in public charging stations or charging stations in your facilities? Or what if we start giving incentives to people to put charging stations in their homes? So the government plays a very large role and it's one of the reasons why in Europe they have been ahead of us. Now, in some cases they've really needed to because they don't rely on oil and gas as much as we do in the U.S. Also, in some of their areas, you know, their country's demographics just lend itself or in geography lend itself a little easier to EV. So the government going to play a very, very large role. We saw when uh, President Biden came into office, he immediately said that he was going to take the entire U.S. fleet of all vehicles and make them electric. 
What's great about that isn't the number of vehicles he's going to make electric. It's the infrastructure that's going to be needed to support that. So government plays a big role and really looking forward to our government here in the U.S. over the next four, five, six years, continuing to expand their role. And we've seen that with the infrastructure bill. So I want to talk real briefly about the EV experience to the public. It used to be you had to be a tree hugger and a save the world kind of person in order to drive an electric car. Rentals. Are you doing anything on EV rentals, Brendan? Yeah, you know, recently Hertz announced that they were purchasing 100,000 Teslas. Wow. Now, one thing we do at our company is we actually, you know, have a rental and short-term capability and, you know, we talk to our clients about, you know, option for adoption, you know, kind of got a nice ring to it, huh? It does. Yeah. I, I can't claim coming up with that. Rude. The primnesia I can claim is mine. Option for adoption is not mine. But what we do there is instead of somebody having to go out and say, buy a hundred EV cargo vans or pickups or, or any light duty or anything they want, we'll actually let's put you in this for six months and then you can pull the data. You can see how you liked it. So, you know, that's what we do. But there's another really interesting thing. A lot of people think that electric vehicles are underpowered. It can't be as powerful as my horsepower. And by the way, in the U.S. and in America, we like our horsepower. People like their engines. What I will tell you is anybody that doesn't think an EV is as powerful or dynamic or as drivable of a traditional ICE vehicle, I would challenge you to this weekend go to your local Porsche dealer, go to your local Audi dealer, go to any dealers. I'm not promoting anything, but if, I promise you, if you get in a Porsche Taycan and you take off, you're going to feel like you're on a roller coaster at Disney. I know personally, I drive an Audi e-tron and that thing is about as fast as anything. Very, very powerful. And quite frankly, I use cruise control right now more than I ever have because that sucker not making any noise just cruises. Next thing you look down and you're going a little faster than you think you are. So it's something that I really push people. And one reason we at our company actually keep a fleet of nice vehicles for when clients come in and when prospects come in and when our financial sponsors come in and they all say the same thing. They go, I didn't realize how powerful these are. I didn't realize how drivable they are. And quite frankly, once you get hooked on it, they're actually nicer. You talk about horsepower. In a little minute, we're going to talk about the Formula E. But first off, I'm in the market for an electric vehicle. And absolutely what you were saying is people that don't think that these cars are performance cars go and test the Porsche Taycan or the Mercedes ESQ. Have you heard about that one, Brendan? We have one in our fleet here. It's very popular, and I try not to use my title as a trump card, so I have not had a chance to drive it yet. But I, I see it I see it in our parking lot, but someday when it's not reserved for somebody else, I'll get a chance to drive that one. It's By the way, do you know another popular one that we a lot of people enjoy driving is a Polestar. You know, we've got a Polestar out there. People really have enjoyed driving that. So, again, going back to horsepower, the McLaren. Oh my goodness. So I was in the market, like I say, for a new car and I test drove the McLaren. The only reason I didn't like it, I couldn't get in and out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, uh, yeah, so we, we formed a partnership, you know, with McLaren in that there's this new race series and, you know, we're a very progressive ESG oriented company and there's this new race series out called Extreme E. They do four to six races a year. And they call it Extreme E because, first of all, it's an electric vehicle. And by the way, I had a chance to be at the unveiling of the McLaren vehicle. This is a beast. It's an off-road beast. I mean, 
think of uh, Cadillac Escalade on steroids. It's, it's a really beefy car. So it's the E for electric. Then it's environmental. So they do the races in environmentally challenged areas to bring attention to that area and some of the challenges it's facing. So it's not gonna be at an F1 track where you got you know 140,000 people. I was down in Austin this year looking forward to going to the F1 Miami and you know, 140,000 people gathered around, it's kind of a party. They're doing one in Saudi Arabia, I believe next week. I'm actually going to one in September in Chile. And then they do digital broadcast to bring attention to the environment in those given areas. And the third part of the E is gender equality. So if you look across the racing industry, if you look across the, for that matter, the auto industry and the fleet industry, it's a very male dominated industry. If you think of F1, if you think of F2, if you think of Formula E, they're very male dominated. Well, in Extreme E, there's two drivers, one male and one female, very focused on gender equality. So, you know, we're a very ESG-focused company. You know, in fact, you know, I have 10 people that report to me, and I'm very proud that I have five men and five women. And in our company, we are currently 51% female, 49% male. And again, we're in a male-dominated industry. So when McLaren was putting together an Extreme E team, and they were gonna have the first female McLaren driver ever. And by the way, the lead race engineer is also female. And when it was gonna be an electric vehicle and when it was gonna be focused on the environment, I raised my hand and said, we gotta be a part of it. And we were actually their inaugural sponsor, their first sponsor. And their CEO, Zach Brown, was nice enough to invite us over to the unveiling over in Glasgow, Scotland at COP26. And there for the unveiling was Prince Charles himself. Wow. Wow, incredible. I was fortunate to be at the Formula E in Monte Carlo a couple of years back. So Extreme E, I'm going to be looking out for that, specifically the electric McLaren. And uh, you're going to be sponsoring that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're sponsoring it. Emma, the driver, she's from New Zealand, which interestingly enough is where Bruce McLaren is from. So we got a little home country going there. And she's a great driver, a great track record, and very excited to see her in, in the first race just a little over a week. And we're having a big watch party at the company and all going to be cheering her on. You know, we can't take the whole company over to Saudi Arabia. And even if we tried, they wouldn't let us. It's not about being at the race. It's about watching it digitally and getting an understanding for how we can make, you know, in this particular case, this part of Saudi Arabia a little bit more environmentally friendly. So Merchant's fleet actually has access to a full range of EVs by manufacturer. Tell us a little bit more, Brendan. What's interesting is you've got your traditional manufacturers. You know, you mentioned Mercedes, we talked Porsche, we talked Audi, Ford and GM, where we've placed really big bets. So we've got all the traditional OEMs that all of us know. And then we've got all these new OEMs. And by the way, OEM stands for Original Equipment Manufacturer, so the manufacturers. And then we've got all these startups. We've got Rivian, we've got Canoe, we have Elms, ELMS. We have XOS. We have all these new brands coming to market. And matter of fact, General Motors brand for their vans is Bright Drop. You know, they decided to have a new brand. So it's real interesting. Before electrification, if you think of the newest OEM before that, well, it's not a good story. It was DeLorean. And, you know, I think we all know he wasn't dealing in just vehicles. And if you know that story. But we haven't really had new OEMs come to market in a number of years. Well, this electrification, we are having all sorts of new OEMs. Lordstown is another. Geez, there's so many. And we're really excited because it's just going to make our jobs easier at getting vehicles. It's also going to give 
you and end consumers and our fleet clients more opportunities for different vehicles and different applications. There's a word being used in electrification for commercial vehicles. A lot of them are purposeful built, meaning they're built for certain applications. So there's going to be more change in the next five years, Rue, in the auto industry than there's been in the last 50 years. Never been a better time to be either sitting on the sideline as a spectator and watching it happen or jumping right in and participating and being a part of it. So let's talk about reliability, serviceability, and operability of the public charging network. Now, I know with fleets, the chargers are more static. They don't get battered as much per se. I could be wrong on that. What do you feel about the reliability of a public charging network, Brendan? The reliability isn't an issue at all. It's the availability that is the issue. So if there's infrastructure in place, you know, there's really no complaints about it. You know, it's working in the vehicles. All of them have their apps and you might notice a lot of them have bigger screens, you know, which is good and bad, you know, because you don't want people too distracted when they're driving. But on those screens, let's say you're getting low on your fuel and it is fuel. It's just different fuel. You know, it will tell you where all the local ones are and, you know, by brand and such. So it's not a matter of reliability. It's a matter of availability. And I think I can promise you this availability is only going to go up. And I think you're going to see it not go up incrementally. I think you're going to see it go up exponentially with more and more coming into play because you're going to have companies, you're going to have oil and gas companies scratch their head and say, if there's less oil and gas, maybe we should be getting into the electric business. You're going to have big private equity firms investing in electrification companies and infrastructure companies. You know, whenever our great country has needed infrastructure, it's always gotten funded either publicly or privately. And I think you'll see a combination of both, but more an availability issue today than it is a reliability issue. So you talk about funding. Let's imagine for a second you're in charge of a $5 billion budget. Well, you're going to spend that money on electrification. Well, I'm going to get myself a McLaren Atora first. That, that's, their, <laughs> that's their new hybrid coming out. Matter of fact, Rue, I'm going to get two. One for me and one okay. for you. Um, so that's now. All right, so, fantastic. So if, if, if I was in charge of $5 billion, the first thing I'd do is I would be putting in as much infrastructure in major cities as possible. You mentioned California. You've got some great areas out there to put them in. And also California under Governor Newsom will be a leading state. And by the way, California in a lot of areas has been a leading state and environment. ESG is, is one of them. You know, so I, I'd really kind of go right up that coast and hit the major cities. I'd also look at other major metros, areas such as New York, Miami, Dallas, Chicago. You know, I, I would hit there and then I'd let it proliferate out. But I would personally be focused on the, the infrastructure side, taking that range anxiety away and making it an option for more and more people. Brendan, it's been fantastic. I'm really excited about what you're doing. I'm a passionate advocate of our electrification. I have been since 1994. So to see someone like you build a business on it, it's fantastic. Really is. Learned a lot. That thing about primetia, oh my gosh, I'm going to quote you on that a lot. Yeah. Hey, Ru, this has been great. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, and have a good, good week and good weekend. I want to thank our listeners for tuning in and our sponsors over at 365 Pronto and Fluke. Now, we want to hear from you, our listener. If there's a topic that you'd like to hear, a guest that you'd like to see on the show, drop us a line, Rue at 365 Pronto. 
That's R-U-E at 365 Pronto. It's always great to receive emails about ideas and what you think of the show. More information on the show can be found on the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast so you never miss an episode. And if you like this episode, share it with your friends. Consider leaving us a rating. This helps us reach even more current and future EV enthusiasts. I want to thank you for listening. I'm really looking forward to the next show and our next guest. See you soon. Cheers. Cheers.